Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for apart from it, we would not know you, we would not know how to live, we would not know how you designed us. And we are grateful that you are our creator, that you did create us with a design that we might live lives that are fulfilled and content. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would... Um, that you would lead us by your spirit into that life which is pleasing to you and glorifying to you and give us strength to deny ourselves, to give ourselves up for your sake. We pray, Lord, that we would do all this with joy in our hearts for Christ has done that for us, denying himself and giving himself up for our sake. We pray that you would help us to see him now and that his grace would be the fuel for our lives. Fill us up in this moment. We pray that your spirit would be present in this room and in our hearts. You would lift them up to worship and glorify you. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the next two sermon series that we're going to do are going to be the New Testament books that you rarely read, right? <laughs> this week, is, this next two weeks, it's going to be Jude, and then I'll be gone for a week. Isaac Fuller's going to preach on August 8th. He's preaching on whatever he wants to preach on. And then we're going to visit Second Peter, right? So two New Testament books that you rarely read, okay? And so for the next two weeks, we're going to do a, a mini-series on the book of Jude, the entire book's only 25 verses, so really the only kind of series you can do is a mini one. Sneeze and you'll miss it. But read it and you might sneeze because this brief letter contains much that is confusing and disagreeable. The first 19 verses were read for you just now and they have been printed in your bulletin. You'll see that after his initial greeting, Jude, in verses 3 and 4, states the reason why he, he writes this letter. Originally, he had planned to, to write a different letter, a, a much warmer, friendlier letter, a celebration of uh, the faith he shared with the, uh, with the original recipients, but he was forced to write the letter we now have in our possession because as he sat down to write, it was brought to his attention that intruders have infiltrated the church, who are, as he says at the end of verse four, perverting the grace of God into licentiousness. And beginning in verse five then, and continuing on through verse 19, 15 of the 25 verses that comprise this letter, Jude compares these intruders over and over again to examples of people who acted similarly or taught similar things and were judged severely for it. He's trying to get the Christians to whom he writes to see the kind of people that they're dealing with and to be on their guard against them. Read through the examples Jude records and you're bound to become quickly confused. For in these 15 verses, Jude references the story of the time when the angels did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling and were 
consequently kept in eternal chains in deepest darkness until the judgment day. In verse 9, he references that time when the archangel Michael and, and the devil were fighting over Moses' body. In verse 14, he quotes a prophecy from Enoch, the seventh generation removed from Adam. Read these and you'll become confused because search your Bible for these stories all you want and you will not find them. You will find the other stories he references, the stories of the Exodus and of Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain and Abel, Balaam, Korah's rebellion, which was read for you earlier. But you'll not find the stories about the angels' rebellion, the dispute over Moses' body, or any recording of a prophecy from Enoch. You won't find them in your Bible because they are not there. These stories are, are found in such non-canonical works as First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. Jude was well-versed in these books, which are foreign to us as Christians because they're not part of our recognized scriptures, what we call the canon. And the foreignness of these references which take up a large portion of his letter and actually contribute to the substance of his argument, has earned Jude the distinction of being a strange and confusing book. And so his little letter often goes unread. His is that one-page book you overlook on your way to the much friendlier, much more easily understood book of Revelation. It's a confusing letter. But another knock on, on Jude's letter, at least according to our modern sensibilities, is his tone. Right? The tone of his letter is judgmental. In verses 12 and 13, he writes beautifully, poetically, but only to more vividly insult the intruders in the church. They are blemishes on your love feast. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. Autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the deepest darkness has been reserved forever. This is poetry weaponized. And by it, Jude defames these people whom he calls intruders. And if that's what Jude means by contending for the faith, you know, crafting and throwing insults, and we believe we, most of us might say, we have little need for Jude, right? We've had enough of self-righteous Christians justifying themselves by denouncing others. We read Jude's 15 verse rant, and we assume this is what he's doing, so we don't read him. He's confusing, and he's offensive. So what do we do in dedicating two whole Sundays to this guy in his little letter? Well, first of all, it's always a, a good practice to read things that you disagree with, that chafe against you. Because that's how you either change and grow or come to a stronger conviction about your position. I mean, one of the most unhealthy things you can do is sit inside an echo chamber, right? To li listen to Fox News or CNN on a loop, for example. You need someone to confront and challenge you if you're ever going to grow or be balanced in your understanding. So if Jude is strange and offensive to you, then all the better to read him, for maybe you'll learn something. Now, all of Scripture chafes against us or rubs us the wrong way at some point, because there's not a single culture that is a one-for-one -one match with the kingdom of God. Jude one of, Jude's one of those those contact points, those places where, he cha where it chafes against us. So I'd propose we have a lot to learn from Jude. I would also suggest that we're reading Jude's letter incorrectly if we focus 
all our attention on verses 5 through 19, for that's not the reason Jude wrote this letter. Jude wrote this letter to urge his Christian friends, friends to contend for the faith that is in them, which they received as a gift from God and inherited from the saints. And the thing that threatens their faith is not the behavior of which Jude disapproves, but the misunderstanding that led to that behavior. The true problem with these intruders and the thing that led them into behavior that demonstrates their denial of Jesus is the fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of grace. They are using the grace of God as license to sin. It's this teaching that worries Jude, and he uses verses 5 through 19 to explain why. In verses 5 through 19, he demonstrates that a misunderstanding of grace has always been a snare to humanity. It's always been wrong. It's always resulted in judgment and condemnation. And yet, his long list of people who have fallen into this error proves how difficult it is for us to resist. And verses 5 through 19, therefore, function as this, this mirror of sorts where Jude shows us our great potential for error and the sin and condemnation that will result from our adoption of a skewed view of grace. It was a temptation for them, it's a temptation for us, so we would do well to look into the mirror that Jude is holding up for us and hold fast to a proper understanding of grace. And what is this fundamental misunderstanding of grace that Jude is warning us about? Well, he tells us in verse 4, these people, these intruders in the church, pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar explains well what was going on. In other words, this scholar writes, they interpret the Christian's liberation by God's grace as liberation from all moral restraint. Right, so the, the gospel says that through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, sinful human beings are forgiven set free from the influence of sin and accepted by God into his eternal kingdom. And all of that becomes true of us when we entrust ourselves in faith to Jesus and allow him not only to, to represent us, but to define us well, as well, to, de deter to determine how we live. But our sinful tendency and what these intruders were teaching is to look at all these benefits in Christ and to go, phew, Glad that's settled. They said a prayer maybe a long time ago and said, Phew, glad that's settled. Now that all that's sorted out, I don't have to worry about God being upset with me ever again because it's all grace, right? It's by grace you're saved through faith, right? Yes, but we must never forget that grace is binding, that it makes demands of us. There's a, a scene in the movie Les Mis, that's a perfect illustration of this truth. I, I don't know if this exact dialogue is in the book as well, but Jake Stratman's always telling me to watch the movie before reading the book, so I've only watched Les Mis so far. And in the movie, there's this scene where Jean Valjean has escaped from prison and he's on the run. And he knocks on the door of a, of a priest and the, the priest takes him in and he feeds him and he gives him a place to sleep for the night. But as the priest is sleeping, Jean Valjean robs the priest. 
He, he takes his silverware, and he stuffs it in a bag, and he, he disappears into the night. And a short while later, he's, he's caught by the, the local police and brought back to the priest's house where the police expect the priest to confirm that this man did indeed steal from him, and then they could lock him up. But the priest does something unexpected. He tells the officers that he gave the silverware to Jean Valjean as a gift. He didn't steal it. It was a gift. And that he was glad that the police caught Jean Valjean and brought him back because Jean Valjean had forgotten to take the silver candlesticks as well. And so the priest walks over to the mantle and takes the silver candlesticks and he gives them to Jean Valjean and he says this to him. Now don't forget, don't ever forget, you've promised to become a new man. To which Jean Valjean replies, promise? What? Why are you doing this? And the priest answers, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. You see, this priest had purchased Jean Valjean by grace, and he was indebted to the priest to do as he said, to become a new man. God has likewise purchased your soul for himself, not with silver, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is all by grace. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you have been forgiven your many sins and have been raised to new life in him in order to live according to however he desires, as a new man, as a new woman. And this is Paul's message in Galatians 2, where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Our position in Christ, therefore, is as his servants. That's our most defining characteristic. It's why Jude, even though he was one of Jesus' brothers, did not introduce himself in this letter as Jude, the brother of Jesus, but as Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Grace has made us servants, each and every one of us, slaves even to Jesus, which is, oddly enough, something to rejoice in, not begrudge. For if we begrudge our position as servants of Jesus Christ, then we not only prove the fact that we, not only, uh, that we have not only a fundamental misunderstanding of grace, but also a fundamental misunderstanding of freedom. For freedom is not the absence of all restraint. Freedom is when we live according to our design. Freedom is when we are fulfilling the purpose for which God made us. Freedom, therefore, necessarily involves restraint. This is a long way from how freedom has come to be defined in our culture. Freedom in our culture is being true to yourself and your desires, regardless of how much pain these desires might cause you. Your own fulfillment is all that matters. But take the the rather simplistic, perhaps even silly example of the whale, and it will be obvious how problematic this definition can be. For if a whale should suddenly be filled with the desire to walk on land, that desire, when fulfilled, will result in death. For a whale was not created to live on land. Or consider the waters of a river without the bank to hold it and direct it. What you get is chaos, a flood, not freedom. And so it is with humanity. The freedom we have gained in Christ does not 
negate our humanity and the natural restraints inherent with being embodied creatures. In fact, the freedom we have gained in Christ calls us to embrace our humanity all the more and the restraints he has set upon us in our design and through his law, where he tells us those things that will lead to to flourishing and those things that will lead to self-destruction. So he calls us to sexual purity and thought and deed, because God tells us that there is nothing safe or casual about sex. It's nothing short of the union of two people into one. God's not prudish or puritanical in this restriction of, of sex to marriage. He's, he is warning you that the, the division and fracturing of your soul that results from a divergence of his design. There's therefore freedom and fulfillment in the, limita- in the limitation of choosing a spouse and being faithful to him or her in th- thought and deed. So too, God calls us to attend to our bodies and consider their design. He calls us to avoid the love of money and possessions. He calls us to love and respect one another. And he has every right to make these demands of us because he has purchased us by his grace and by his blood. If we truly trust him, we won't begrudge him these demands, but seek them out with joy, even if they are difficult. For we prove the genuineness of our faith, the genuineness of our love and of our trust through persistent obedience. This is Jude's point in his letter and his concern for his friends, that through persistent and unrepentant disobedience, these intruders in the church are proving themselves to not be Christians at all. It isn't that they lost the faith, they never had it. For to quote Martin Luther, they regard themselves, not him, as their Lord. They thought Christ was offering a freedom that gave them license to sin. But the freedom that Christ provides is a freedom to no longer consider your own interests, but to give yourselves up in service to your neighbor and your enemy. To deny those desires in you that lead to sin. To become a new man, a new woman. There's freedom in dying and denying yourself out of obedience to Christ. It's a hard truth to grasp and an even harder one to live. But may the Spirit dwelling within you make you both willing and able to do so. For through your perpetual obedience, you will be preparing yourself to live in the presence of God. As the old hymn goes, O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.